Romans chapter number 5 is where we're going to be this morning. Maybe you're still there from our, from our reading together. Let's pause just one more time and ask God to help us as we, as we turn to his precious word. All right, Romans chapter 5, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this chapter in your holy word. And as we come to it now, um, I pray for the work of your Holy Spirit. I pray for his work in my mind and in uh, my heart and the words that I speak. And I pray for his powerful work in everyone who hears. Um, You've told us your word is powerful and we believe it. We believe it because we believe in the Holy Spirit. And so I pray for his help even right now for all of us. Um, so that you would be praised in Jesus' name. Amen. Adam mentioned last week that we're going to continue focusing on the cross and on the crucifixion and on implications that that come from it. Um, We studied in Matthew the the narrative, the story of the cross, um, and yet the story of the cross goes so much beyond just information, beyond just an event, right? Right? the cross is that central moment in human history, uh, and, and after it, nothing would ever be the same. Uh, the cross is, is, has, is so rich, it has, is so full, it has so much meaning uh, that we really could spend months and months and months of Sundays just talking about the cross and its implications. Our New Testament is full of cross implications. Uh, the, the apostles return again and again to the narrative that Matthew presented to say what was happening there was not just an event. It was something with, with deep, spiritual, eternal ramifications. And so what we're going to do today is just, is just see Paul focusing on, on three of those ramifications, and then Adam will preach another message next week also dealing with implications from the cross. Because it's good for us to, having considered the story, um, consider the, the breadth, um, the, other, the other pieces that, that aren't present in Matthew as we consider the cross. And kind of a, a way that I was thinking about it, um, an, an illustration for you, uh, is the Grand Canyon. So my wife and I, um, we were living in South Carolina before we moved to L.A., and uh, we, we loaded up our, our moving truck, towed our car behind us, and we drove across from South Carolina to California and had a great time doing it. Uh, and we went nice and slow. We weren't, we weren't rushing. We weren't trying to set any land speed records. And so we stopped at various places along the way. We stopped at some friends' houses, um, one of the places we wanted to stop was at Grand Canyon. And so um, I'd only, of course, I'd only ever seen pictures of it. And, and so we thought, well, well, we'll go and see. It was kind of out of the way. Um, but in reality, I think probably Kathy wanted to see it, and I was going along um, with the plan. And so uh, we, got to, we got to Grand Canyon, and uh, we walked out there, and I was just struck with how immense it is. Uh, I don't know how many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon or, or gone beyond just seeing it in pictures, but... I wasn't prepared for just, just the enormous expanse that it was. It's, it's giant. It's, it was beyond what I had comprehended. Um, everything that, that I called a canyon growing up when I, when I was little, didn't, it wasn't even close. It had no comparison. And uh, so we stood on, on this overlook, and, and we looked out over all of it, and, and I was duly impressed. And, uh, and Kathy said, man, I would love, there's another lookout, and I'd love to go over to the other one and look out too. And, uh, well, I wasn't really as excited about that, to be honest. I'm probably not the person you want to go traveling places with um, because my response was something, I don't remember exactly what I said, but something along the lines of, um, well, it's going to look the same on the other side as it does here. It's still going to be a great big canyon. 
Uh, she's like, but I want to see it from over there. And I, and I was why? It's, it's, it's still this great big, you know, canyon, this hole in the ground. Uh, so we decided we'd go watch. Um, they have a little movie about it, so we decided we'd go watch the movie. And uh, so in this movie, they go beyond just standing on the rim of the canyon and actually go into the canyon. Uh, and, and that movie sold me on Kathy's idea that we didn't just want to go to the other side, we actually wanted to explore this thing. Because in this movie, there's, there's all these um, branches of the river that go off underneath the canyon, and there's trails, and there's passageways, and there's caves, and there's all these things further deep down in the Grand Canyon that you don't see when you're, when you're up above. And so my attitude changed, and I wish that we could have spent more days at Grand Canyon. Uh, I say all that just to say what we've, we've done in, in Matthew as we've been surveying the crucifixion. We've seen the big picture. We, we've seen Christ suffering. He's, he suffered personally and spiritually and victoriously, and, and we've seen this great expanse of the crucifixion. And yet there's so much detail to it. There are so many little pieces that we could spend forever exploring. And that's what we want to do today and in coming Sundays. Let's, let's get down in it and let's explore it, all right? And Romans chapter 5 is going to help us do that. One main, one main point for you today. The cross highly exalts Jesus Christ and draws us to worship him, all right? The cross highly exalts Jesus Christ and it draws us to worship him. Where we are in the book of Romans, when we get to chapter number 5, Paul has repeatedly made his case for not having any righteousness in and of ourselves, that all men are sinners, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no righteousness in us, but the only place for righteousness is faith in Jesus Christ. So you get to verse number 1, and Paul is going to inform us that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 5 is going to turn the corner to, if you have been declared, with right, uh, you've been declared righteous in God's sight, then this is what you have. All right? And these first couple verses are verses that Adam preached on to us uh, not long ago, I think maybe at a Christmas time or at an Easter time. Um, let me just remind you of what we have in Christ in these first couple verses. Because we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There in verse number one. Secondly, we have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. So we have peace with God because we've been declared righteous. We have a standing place for grace. On top of that, verse number three, we rejoice on our sufferings. So because we're declared righteous, we're rejoicing in our suffering. All right? Um, and because we know that suffering is working out God's perfect plan. It's working out endurance and character and hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And that brings us to verse number 6. And we're going to spend our time in verses 6 through 11. All right, Paul has already laid out, these are blessings that come from the cross. Peace, access into faith, rejoicing. These are things that we've already been given. Verses 6 through 11, we're going to mine even more blessed results, more implications of the cross. Right, And we're going to see that the cross is going to highly exalt Jesus and draw us to worship him. So let me read just the verses that we'll be focusing on, starting in verse number six. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 
There's a first point about Christ's exaltation. The first point is that Christ is our demonstration of love. This is why the cross highly exalts Jesus Christ and draws us to worship him, because Christ is the demonstration of love. In verse 5, Paul had mentioned that God's love has been poured into our hearts. Um, really, verses, verses 6 through 8 are going to expound on what that love looks like. He's going to say, God has poured out this love, and in case you're wondering what it looks like that God has poured out his love, let me tell you. And verse, verse number 8 is really the, the pinnacle explanation of God's love. Verse number 8 tells us God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do we know this morning that God loves us? And the answer is Christ died. The answer is the cross because Christ is our demonstration of love. But Paul is going to build an argument that begins in verse number 6. So we, so we need to start there. Remember, all this is him explaining how do we know that God's love has been poured into our hearts. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died is a repetition in these verses that Paul keeps going back to again and again. He keeps coming back to the cross. Christ died. It says, while we were still weak. All right? That word weak, it doesn't have to do with physical weakness. It has to do with moral weakness, with frailty, with, with the inability to, to do righteousness, to, to do good things, to earn God's favor. We were weak. We were, we were corrupted. We were sickly and, and powerless. We were totally unable to rescue ourselves from the effects of the fall. That's reality about us. We are weak. We, we can't pull ourselves out of our sinful nature. We, we can't just pull out of this nosedive that we're in. While we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That little phrase, at the right time, uh, is something that I don't know that I had thought through very clearly. Um, what is the right time that Christ died that Paul's talking about here? I think my mind initially runs to things that Paul has said elsewhere, like Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, having to do with uh, the right time was in God's timing. All right? that's, that's certainly one way to think about at the right time. It's just when, when, when God timed it. I don't think that's exactly what Paul is trying to say in this passage. Rather, he's saying at the exact right time of our need. So not the time of God's planning, but at the exact right time of our need. Because notice, he's already told us what time he's talking about while we were still weak. At that right time, Christ died for us. He's already told us, here's the timing. The timing is we're weak. That's, that's when this happened. When did it happen that Christ died for the ungodly? It was when we were powerless. It was when we were weak. And at, at that exact right time, Christ died, and he did it for the ungodly. All right? I hope you notice kind of the three... Um, uncomplimentary descriptions of the people who need the cross. Um, notice what he says. We were weak, so we're powerless, we're sickly, um, we're unable to save ourselves. It says Christ died for the ungodly, um, for the godless. That's who Christ died for. He's g- going to go on to say that God, God shows his love while we were sinners, um, while we were actively, willfully sinners. That's when Christ died. That's the description of the people who needed the cross, and, and so at the exact right time that they were sinners, that we were sinners, um, that we were powerless, that we were ungodly, that's when Christ died. And Paul's going to go on to think about how amazing this timing is. So notice he says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now consider how remarkable that is because of verse number seven. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. 
Paul says, it's amazing that, that Christ would die for us while we were weak and powerless because, because of what we know to be true about ourselves. What we know to be true about humanity is it's really hard to find someone who will die for a righteous person. Uh, it, it's, it's hard. It's hard to find that person. It's, um, you, you can look for him a long time, and, and you're going to have trouble finding someone who will, they will scarcely die for a righteous person. But beyond that, he says, though maybe for a good person, one would dare even to die. All right? What's the difference in Paul's thinking between a righteous person and a good person? All right? A lot of people have said there isn't any difference. He's just talking about the same thing. Um, I think there is a slight nuance between the difference between a righteous person and a good person. The righteous person is the person that does as they ought. It's just your, it's just your normal, um, morally upright, nice kind of person. All right? The word good, though, has to refer with somebody who is doing good things, doing benevolent kind of thing. Uh, in fact, it was a word that was used as a benefactor, someone who, was, someone who was aiding others. So I think what Paul is saying is it's hard to find someone who will die for, a, for an upright moral person. Although maybe if you found someone who was super generous, who was super kind, who had blessed you in lots of different ways, maybe you could find someone that would be willing to die for that person, for the person that was going above and beyond the call of duty, if you will. But even that, you're going to have to find someone who will dare even to die. Who, they'll be brave, and they'll, um, that's unusual. All right? And this is unusual in, in our culture, and we know this to be true. Um, we, we do have the occasional cases of, of the brave firefighter that runs into the burning building, the, um, the soldier who sacrifices his life for, for his comrades. But those things are so, uh, they're so amazing because they are so unusual. This, is, this isn't normal life where people are sacrificing themselves for others, um, even for the people that they might love the most, especially if it wasn't just an instinctive thing, but you actually gave them a choice. If you actually sat there and it wasn't just the grenade landed in my lap, now I'm going to do something, or the building's burning down. But if you actually stopped and said, okay, we've got a choice. Either you're going to die or this person's going to die. Which will it be? It'd be really hard to find someone who, with that amount of time and that amount of thinking, would die even for a good person. All right, That's Paul's point. What Paul says is that God's love is totally different than that. Because look at verse number 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ is our demonstration of love because while we were still in the class of of sinners, that's when he died for us. Not not when we were righteous, not when we were doing him any good, not when we were doing God any favors. While we were still opposed to God, God showed his love at that time that Christ died for us. And this is part of the marvel of the cross is that what was happening at the crucifixion was God was pouring out his love on people who were currently rejecting him, who were opposing him, and who would oppose him. And yet God's love is poured out. It is demonstrated that Christ was dying at the right time, the time that we were still lost in our sin. How do we know that God loves us? Because God shows his love. He demonstrates it. It's something that you can see. That word shows, notice that that little word is in the present. It doesn't say God showed us that he loved us when he died. Right? The crucifixion is passed for Paul just like it is for us right now. And he says the crucifixion shows us God's love. That's because the cross continues to proclaim a message. It continues to proclaim God's love. It's still showing, it's still demonstrating God's love. It has a present message for us even today. What we're intended to see is a a contrast between the, the worth of the life that was laid down and the unworthiness of the people who benefit from it. 
All right? So you've got Jesus Christ, the Holy One, the Worthy One, and he's exchanging his life for sinners. This isn't, this isn't an even trade. This isn't, this isn't a fair trade. Uh, this is a Holy One dying for sinners. And in that, we see God's love. So the cross is a demonstration of the love of God. God shows his love. It's God shows his own kind of love, and he does it for us. While, while we were still sinners, while we were still there in sin, Christ died for us. This is a sovereign love. We talk about sovereign grace. This is a sovereign love. This is a love that it's chosen to love. It's not because we were lovable. It's not because sinners are so wonderful. This is a sovereign kind of love. It is undeserved and unmerited. It is a love that comes because he chooses to do so. I hope it's encouraging for you this morning to know that there is an objective way to know that God loves you. This is, this is not just a subjective feeling. Uh, this is not wishful thinking. Man, I kind of hope that God loves me. Uh, there is something that is objective and clear, and what is clear is the cross. How do we know that we're not just hoping that God has love for us? How do we know that God loves us when we don't feel particularly loved? Or when we don't even feel particularly lovable? How do we know that God loves us then? The answer is the cross. Because the cross is Christ's demonstration of the love of God to us. It is, it is objective, it is clear, it is permanent. Look to the cross and you'll see the love of God. Let's flip over to another passage that reminds us of this truth. 1 John chapter number 4. First John chapter number 4. John, who writes so much about the love of God, reminds us um, that, that the cross is the demonstration of love. The cross was not just an event. The cross was God's love on display. 1 John 4. We'll read from uh, 7 down through 10. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. All right? what, what do we mean when we say God loves us? How, how do we see it? What does it look like? God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Understanding the love of God is directly connected to understanding that we are sinners and that Christ has taken our place. Understanding the love of God has to include understanding the wrath of the cross. There's no way for us to see God's love in the way that we ought to without understanding what was happening in the moment of crucifixion. Because when, when Paul says in Romans that he died for us, he's talking about substitution. He's talking about he died in our place. This is the, this is the same thing that um, the religious leaders ironically said. Um, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, die for the people. That is, die in the people's place so that Christ would die instead of the people, so that the whole nation should not perish. This is what Paul meant in Galatians 3.13 when he said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. We see the love of God at the cross because at the cross, Jesus is taking our place. 
And if we don't understand the cross as Jesus taking our place, we will never be able to see the love of God with the clarity that we're intended to. If the cross is anything other than substitution, uh, other, other than an exchange, if, the, if, it's, if it's robbed of that element, uh, then we miss the love of God. Because the love of God is not just, um, not just poured out in, in Jesus doing something really sacrificial. Uh, well, he did something really nice, and so I'm going to love him. That wasn't all that was happening at the cross. He wasn't just being a, being a nice martyr. Uh, he wasn't being, a, being an example of you that you should lay down your life. What he was doing was taking our place. He was taking our blame because we were sinners at that point. And he was trading his place for ours. And that's how we see the love of God on display. Christ didn't die for those who were right. He died for those who are sinners. And that's good news for us today because that's you and that's me. And Christ died for sinners. Now, nowhere in Matthew 27, as Adam was preaching, did he, did he ever read a verse that says, and here it says in Matthew 27, such and such, see God, God loves you. You won't, you won't read God loves you in the crucifixion account. But the cross screams his love for any who have ears to hear it. His love is all over that grisly hill. In every dark moment of Calvary, God's love is burning brightly for us. It is on display. Do you want to see the love of God? Then look at the cross where a lamb is being sacrificed for your sins, and you will see the love of God. I'm... I'm concerned this morning that there are two things that could dull our appreciation for the love that was shown to us at the cross. And I just want to present these to you as something to think about. What could possibly dull our thinking about this love that was shown on the cross? First thing I'm concerned about is a muted view of sin, right? A, a tamed down view of sin. Because if we have a tamed down view of sin, we will not appreciate the love of God on display at the cross. All right. Let me just remind you of some things that are true about sin. Sin is deep within us. Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above all things and incurably sick. Who can understand it? That's what's true about us. We have hearts, we have beings who are incurably sick because of sin. Sin is deep within us. Sin is unavoidable. We read Romans 5:12. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, death spread to all men because all sinned. This is what is true about sin. It's inside us. It is unavoidable. Ephesians 2, 1 and 3 would tell us that sin is deadly and it is controlling. Remember these words from Paul in Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Right? This is what is true about sin. It is deadly. It is controlling. We were following along. We were, we were walking step in step. We were marching along with the same beat that everybody else was, which was we sin, we pursue our own passions, and we were dead in our sins. On top of that, Sin is universal. Let's flip back just a little bit in Romans to Romans chapter 3. Had we been preaching throughout Romans, Paul, this, this point would have been unavoidable from Paul, um, which is that we all sin and there's no way for us to make ourselves righteous. Uh, but Romans 3, uh, 9 through 18, um, is just one of those 
battering ram texts that tear away at our impression of how good we are. All right? Because this passage will tell us sin is universal. Romans 3, verse number 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All right? And again, in Jewish thought, you've got two groups of people. You've got Jews and everybody else, all right, representing the Greeks. And he says, whether you're a Jew or whether you're everybody else, everyone is under sin. And then he presents these texts for us to consider. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is Paul saying the sinful condition is universal. Whether you're Jew, whether you're anyone else, we are all under sin. This passage describes us as sinners, as ungodly, as weak. This is the reality of sin, right? What could possibly mute or, or, or tame down that perspective of sin? And, and I think there are, there are three things that, that can easily do it. Uh, there are things that you know. It's the world, and it's the flesh, and it's the devil. And those things seek to tame down our view of sin. How does our world try to mute this view of sin that says that sin is, we're shot through with it, that we're evil in every part, that even our thoughts have been corrupted by sin, that, that we are born sinful, not good? How does the world combat that biblical thinking about sin? Well, I think especially in our day, we live in the day of, of therapy and self-esteem, right? If you've never heard the message of therapy and self-esteem, uh, I, I would be shocked if you haven't heard the idea that, that we are basically good and, and we need to try to attain, a, a just, just believe in your own self and to your own self be true and, and reach your own standard of goodness. And there's a spark of goodness in all of us. And, and uh, your biggest problem uh, is not that you feel guilty, uh, your biggest problem is that you, you shouldn't feel guilty. Uh, your problem is that you're, you're a better person than that. Um, don't get yourself down like that. Uh, this is the power of positive thinking. Let's think, let's think optimistic thoughts about ourselves. Let's be, let's be positive. Uh, this biblical message of sin is negative. Uh, and negative in our day equals bad, and positive is good. So let's think good things about ourselves. Let's think good things about everybody else. This is the world's message about humanity, which is we're, we're good. Uh, I'm good. You're good. Come on. Let's just believe in the good. Let's just believe in yourself a little bit more. Uh, have a little bit better self-esteem. All right. This message is everywhere in our world. It's in our educational systems. Uh, it's on the news. Uh, it's in the books that you read. It's everywhere. Uh, it's even in the pulpits of America. We just need to think a little bit better about ourselves. All right, it's everywhere. It's in our Christianity. Uh, it, it, everywhere you go, the world says, let's tame down this view of sin. And if we do that, then what we sacrifice is seeing the love of God because what God did was die for sinners. He didn't die for people that were mostly good and needed a little bit of improving. He died for sinners. He died for dead people. And I fear that we lose our, our worship of Christ. We lose the amount of adoration we ought to have if we have small thoughts of sin. And that's why I think it's important for us to, to think biblically, think carefully about sin. Not because we like to be down in the dumps and, and kick ourselves all the time, because if we don't understand ourselves as sinners, then we won't see God's love and the clarity that we ought to have because Christ died for sinners, all right? 
The world tries to, tries to mute our, our view of sin. Our flesh likes to try to mute our view of sin. I even say this to you as, as believing people. Um, we don't even like to think about our sin as honestly as we ought to. We don't even like to own up to how vile and, and dark our sin is. We, we don't even like to think of our sin as the, as the affront to God's holiness that it really is. Um, we, I think we reflect this when we pray weak and small prayers of repentance. When, when it comes time for us to repent of our sin and we're not broken, even as believers, when we realize we've sinned, when we just lightly pass over our sin as if it's no big deal, it's a big deal to God. But it's easy for our flesh to say, relax. It's, you know, it was just a little lie. Um, you only lost your temper a little bit and it was perfectly understandable. Do you know what time of night it is? You know how long I've been working? It's okay. Uh, we excuse ourselves so easily and the danger is that we miss, we miss understanding sin, which means we miss seeing the love of God on full display. And of course, the devil and his philosophies that he, is, that he is encouraging worldwide are in opposition to seeing the love of God on display. He would, like to, he would like to limit our view of sin. Sin isn't that bad. From the day he told the first lie to Eve, um, did God really say that? And then directly challenge God, you won't surely die. The devil has tried to say sin's not that bad. This is not. And in reality, if we don't see sin clearly, we won't see the love of God clearly either. So I think our appreciation for the love shown on the cross could be dulled if we have a muted view of sin. Uh, A second thing that I think could hinder us from seeing the love of God on full display is a warped vision of love. All right? A warped vision of love will hurt us from seeing love on display. I just want to use one very current, very practical illustration of what I mean by a warped view of love. Um, there is a very popular uh, megachurch pastor by the name of Rob Bell, and he has just produced a book, and the name of the book is Love Wins. And this book has caused a firestorm uh, in, the, in the Christian world. Maybe some of you have heard it. I, I can't imagine that lots of you are big you know, Rob Bell followers, but uh, you, know, you may have heard about this. I just use this as an illustration. Um, so he wrote this book called Love Wins, and it has ignited such a firestorm. Uh, it's, it's been everywhere on the, on, on the internet. He's been on the news. He's been on Fox News. He's been on CNN. I mean, this is not just in the Christian world. I mean, the secular world has taken notice of this book and the things that he is presenting. Um, if you know anything about Twitter, there was so much discussion when, when this book launched that it started trending on Twitter, all right? If you don't know anything about Twitter and you're going, what are you talking about? It just means it became so popular that a website where people talk about what they're doing, it became nationally known. I mean, there are millions of people on Twitter, and this, this conversation about Rob Bell became one of the top featured highlights on this secular chatting website. I don't know how to subscribe Twitter to if you don't know. Um, just use it. Uh, anyway, so, so what I'm saying is this is a big deal in our, in our world today. So it's not that I think you're necessarily you know, going to dive into what I think is heresy from Rob Bell, but this is something that impacts us, and I'm using this as an example to say there's warped visions of love that are out there. Here's, here's what Rob Bell does in, in Love Wins. In Love Wins, Rob Bell argues that hell is what we create for ourselves when we reject God's love. He says that hell is a present reality if you're resisting God right now and a future reality if you die unready for God's love. He says that hell is what we make of heaven when we cannot accept the good news of God's mercy and forgiveness, but hell's not forever. 
because God will have his way. How could God's good purposes ever fail? Because every sinner will turn to God and realize he's been reconciled to God. Either he'll do that in this life or he'll do that in the next. He says there can be no eternal conscious torment. God says no to injustice in the ages to come, but he doesn't pour out wrath. He never does that, and he certainly does not punish for people for eternity because in the end, love wins. See, that's, that's the idea of the book. Love wins. Um, Bell wrote that never-ending punishment does not give God glory, and God's love will eventually melt even the hardest of hearts. All right? And let me just read you one quote from the introduction of the book um, to let you hear his exact words. Bell says, A staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. All right? So staggering number of people, that would include me, and I hope that would include all of you that have been taught that. Um, I think that's what we call orthodox Christianity. But anyway, so um, he says, it's been clearly communicated to many that this belief is a central truth of the Christian faith, and to reject it is, in essence, to reject Jesus. This is misguided, toxic, and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. He says, what our world needs to hear is that God loves. God loves so much that in the end, God's love is going to win and everyone is going is to experience the gospel. They're going to they're be reconciled to God in the end. That's how, that's how we make God's love look great, is that in the end, he wins everyone to himself. That's the argument, okay? What's the problem with that? The problem is that's a warped vision of love because it removes several things that are key to God's love. It removes God's holiness, because only in the cross can sin be, can be paid for, and Christ and God have declared how it is that that is applied to us. It's not just that Christ died, and so therefore everyone in the world has been reconciled to God. What God demands is that we respond with faith and obedience. And so Bell would like to remove the faith and obedience part and just say the cross of Christ has effect for everybody. It has saving effect for all. Everyone can get the blessings of salvation. It misses that God's love is a holy love, a just love. It misses that God's love has communicated the truth in his word. God says what is true. God's God's love is not just this warm, fuzzy feeling for everybody in the whole wide world. God's love is, is confined in his holiness. It is described by his holiness. God's love is on display at the cross, which is in itself a wrathful moment. All right? You want to see God's love? Then see that God poured out all of his wrath on Jesus. So, so wrath is not the opposite of love. Um, we, we can't say that God is loving by removing the idea of hell or any other kind of punishment from God. To, to do that actually destroys the biblical God. God's love is on display through his wrath because he was pouring out his wrath on Jesus and not on you. So God's love winning God's love always wins his own glory. God's love will win everyone who is elect to himself. But God's love does not mean that everyone will be exempt from hell. That's a warped vision of love. And if we have a warped vision of love, then we minimize what the cro- was actually happening at the cross. So I, what I'm just saying is if we, if we have a tamed-down version of sin, if we have a misunderstanding of love, we're going to lose the adoration and worship we should have of our Christ because the cross is the demonstration of his love. An empty hell is never what is said in the Bible to be the demonstration of God's love. The cross is the demonstration of God's love. 
So if you want to know that God loves you today, the place to look at is Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. And then you will know what God's love looks like. It's not just love that Christ shows us. Christ is our demonstration of love, but Christ is also our hope of salvation. Look in verse number nine. He's going to give us some therefores. Christ is our, our hope of salvation. Verse number nine, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. All right, here's the argument. If we've already been justified by his blood, all right, if that's already happened, we've been declared righteous because of the blood of, of Christ. We, we have, God says you are just as right as Jesus is. That's already happened. And that's happened through the blood. All right, let's not miss that sacrifice element there again. Peter would remind us of the same thing in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It was blood that bought us, all right? We were justified. So if that happened, if, if you've been declared righteous and that's a one-time activity and it's been done, then much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That word saved is a, is a future word. I know a lot of times we think, we usually ask the question, um, are you saved? Uh, are, are you saved right now? Uh, but especially in Romans, Paul uses the word saved in a future sense. In fact, eight of the nine times he uses it, it's in the future, right? Because there is a future aspect to our salvation that we don't experience right now. And you all know this to be true, right? You know, you know that to be true that you still have sin that, that dogs at you and hangs on, right? You haven't received your full salvation you are very aware that you have a body that's marked by sin and is falling apart, and you haven't received a glorified body yet. You haven't received your full salvation. Um, so, so the salvation is future here in, in Paul's mind, and what he's saying is, if it's true that we've been justified by his blood, then surely we're going to have our future salvation, right? This is, this is assurance kind of verses. These are verses that we say, this is what we bank our hope in. Christ is our hope of salvation because if his blood justified me, then his life will certainly save me from the wrath of God. Paul had already talked about the wrath of God in Romans. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But I think more specifically, he's talking about the same kind of wrath he did in chapter two of Romans when he said in Romans 2, 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Right? There is a day coming that is a day of God's wrath. And on what do you base your hope that you will be saved from that wrath? And the answer is, Christ is my hope of salvation in the day of wrath, the day that hasn't happened yet, the future day that is coming. My hope is in Jesus Christ and it's on the cross. See, Matthew 27 didn't, didn't talk about the future day of wrath. But Matthew 27 grounds our hope that because we have been justified in the cross, then one day we certainly will be saved from the wrath that God pours out. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. I hope you, hope you notice that throughout this passage, Paul is, he kept say, he keeps saying, we and for us, we and for us. This love of God and this hope, it is, it is for us, which is, for believers, all right? And that's an important distinction or else you're going to run down the same trail that, that Bell did. Uh, it is true that God has a love for all of humanity. But when we talk about his love on display at the cross, when we talk about the hope of our salvation, that is a hope that is a distinctly Christian hope because the cross was only savingly beneficial for those who would believe in Jesus. 
all right? Its saving benefit was not for the world. It was only for those who God chose in his kindness. Because otherwise, we would read these verses and say, oh, God shows a love for everyone, that Christ has taken everyone's place. Um, Well, we have now been justified by his blood. Well, everyone's been justified by his blood then. So we will be saved by him from the wrath of God. Well, then everyone will be saved from the wrath of God, all right? Remember who the we and the us is in this passage. Paul's talking to Christian people, and he says Christ's death was God's love for you. Christ, the hope that we have of our future salvation, it's for us. This is distinctly Christian property to say God's love was on display for me at the cross, and my hope of salvation is in Christ, and that's for me. That's for us. Paul will, Paul will go on to argue from, from kind of the from the greater to the lesser in verse number 10. He says, If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. All right? Remember that there are enemies of God. All right? I, 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 mean, I think that ought to be obvious to us. There are enemies of God. And there are people that God views as his enemies. All right? Romans 11. Paul says that when it comes to the gospel, there are people who are enemies of God. Philippians 3.18, Paul says, With tears, there are many who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. James tells us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. God has enemies, right? And those enemies are sinners. But what Paul says here is, if, if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, if, if Christ died while we were still enemies and he fixed that, that hatred, if, if he brought us peace instead of war, if he exchanged and fixed the relationship, if that happened when we were still enemies, then now that we're actually children, now, now that we're actually one with God, now that we're reconciled, how much more are we going to be saved through his life, through his resurrection life? Look, if God loved, loved you so that the cross was in the past and he brought you reconciliation when you didn't deserve it, you were still dead in your sins, remember, before you actually believed the gospel, if God did that and he declared you righteous when you were still opposing him, then surely now that you have responded in faith, he will save you entirely. And that's the point. Christ is our hope of salvation because if he reconciled us while we were enemies, he will certainly save us now that we are friends. If God justifies his enemies, this is Paul's point, if God justifies his enemies, he will certainly save his friends. So Christian this morning, If you wonder, will God finally and fully save me? The answer is, look to the cross. Because at the cross, you'll see that that your justification is wrapped up in the person of Christ. He's high and lifted up, and he is your hope of salvation because the cross is your reminder, God will fully and finally save me because he has already declared me righteous because of the cross. Jesus is our hope of salvation our future salvation. And that salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Christ will fully save us. But that's not all. There is one more glorious truth, one more, one more canyon for us to explore at the bottom of this grand, glorious crucifixion reality. Christ is the demonstration of God's love. Christ is our hope of salvation. But lastly, Christ is our reason for rejoicing. Verse number 11. More than that, and Paul keeps piling that on. I don't know if you noticed that even when we were reading earlier in Romans 5. He keeps saying, more than that. 
What he means is, let's just pile on something else, all right? You, you thought it was great to think about the love of God, and it is. Man, think about the love of God at the cross and, and him taking his place. And on top of that, man, Christ is my hope of salvation, and this is such a glorious truth, and let's just camp out here all day. Paul says, well, hang on, there's more than that. Let's, let's pile something else on on top of that. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I mean, on on top of the love of God on display, on top of the hope that we can have in Jesus Christ, we can be people who who are boastfully rejoicing in Jesus this morning. This has a present, very real application for us. Because Christ died, you can rejoice, right? There might be lots of things that are chipping away at your joy today. There might be lots of things that are nagging at you that, that give you reasons to, n- to not have joy, um, things that you're not happy about, all right? What Paul says is, on top of everything else, let the cross be what points you to your reason for rejoicing. We rejoice in God. It's, the, it's a word for boasting. Uh, it's, a, it's a word for exalting. This is what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 27. Let's flip over there, 1 Corinthians 1 at the very end of this opening chapter to the Corinthian believers. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. He's, he's describing God's choice to take the foolish instead of the wise. And the reason is that God wants us to boast, not in us, but to boast in the cross because Christ is our reason for rejoicing. Verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why do we, why do we rejoice in Jesus Christ this morning? Why, do you, why would you rejoice in him all week long? And the answer is, look back at the cross. Look at the crucifixion. This has a lasting impact on our day and on our week and on our lives because he's the only one who's worthy of this kind of boasting, this kind of rejoicing. That the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. We rejoice in God, and notice that that rejoicing comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you've seen that in this passage over and over again. Christ died. God shows his love for us in that Christ died. We've been justified by his blood. We are saved by him. We have been reconciled to God by the death of his son. Notice the focus on Christ. He is high and lifted up because of the cross. We will be saved by his life. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ because what the cross did is it lifted up Jesus Christ and it said he is the one who is worthy of worship When Christ is lifted up, he said, I will draw all men to myself. And he has drawn us to him and said, he is the one who is worthy of this kind of worship and this kind of adoration. The love of God, our hope, our rejoicing, it is all found in the person of Jesus Christ. And the cross proclaims this message for all of eternity. This is the love of God. This is your hope for salvation This is a reason for rejoicing this day and every day. These are implications from the cross. So let me just recommend a few applications from this message. A few few so what's. And we're going to let other texts of scripture tell us commands that are connected to this message. All right, so we're going to go to a passage for every application this morning. 
Here's your first application. Directly connected to Christ is high and exalted, and he's drawn us to him in the cross, considering the cross. First application today, love other Christians. Love other Christians. First John 4, 7 through 11, we, we read about um, the love of God was made manifest among us. God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. Um, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What we didn't read is verse number 11. This is what verse number 11 says. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So do you want to live out this message? Then love one another. Have you been gripped? Have you been grasped by the love of God that was shown to us in the person of Jesus Christ? Then love one another. If it's hard for you, if there's someone who right now uh, in our church, you're struggling to show love to them and you're wondering, how am I going to do this? Uh, then what you do is you go back to the love that God has for you on the cross and you say, oh, that's what love looks like. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fill my mind with that and that's going to teach me how to love one another. Um, how important are other people in our church to me? Well, I go back to the cross and I see the kind of love that God has for his enemies. So what kind of love ought I have to my brothers and my sisters in the faith? All right, love one another. There are obviously a myriad of ways you can live that love out. But let that be one thing from John. Because of the cross, love one another. All right? Second idea for application, don't live for yourself this week. Live for Christ. Again, you can apply this in your own life in a myriad of ways, but don't live for yourself this week. Live for Christ. Hear Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So are you convinced this morning that Christ died for you at the cross, that that was God's love, that he is your hope of salvation? Then Paul tells you in Corinthians, it's not so that you can live for yourself, it's so that you can live for the one who took your place. All right? Don't live for yourself this week. Live for Christ. Another application to consider today. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Have your relationship repaired with God. Have God no longer be your enemy, but have God be your loving father and even your friend. I want to communicate this message to those of you who are here this morning and and you are outside the love of God. You have have never looked at the cross as your only hope for salvation. You You have never said, I am a sinner God is holy, but I am a sinner, and and I cannot save myself, and I need someone to save me. If you have never come to grips with the reality that that it is appointed to men once to die, and after this is coming a judgment, when there is a God who is real and a God who is wrathful, who will deal with you according to your sins, if, if you have not come to face those realities, I urge you today, be reconciled to God because he is not your friend this morning. God, God is not your buddy. God is not on your side. Uh, God is not a nice afterthought to you. He is not with you if you have not bowed your knee in submission, if you have not obeyed the gospel, if, not, if you have not obeyed the good news that Jesus Christ and him alone is your hope for salvation. Because Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So I stand before you today as an ambassador for God. I'm, I'm speaking for him. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be 
reconciled to God for our sake. Notice, this is directly connected to the cross. This is directly connected to Jesus being our substitute. For our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So on behalf of God, I urge you, be reconciled to God. And that can only come to the person of Jesus Christ who was made to be sin for you if you will just believe and repent of your sins. Back to us who are, who are believers. Two more concluding applications to consider. Boast in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Boast in him. I already read 1 Corinthians one thirty one. As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Uh, when you get up from your seats uh, and you start talking with one another, uh, don't boast in what a good week you had last week. Uh, don't, don't glory in all the exciting things you're looking forward to this coming week. Make your boast in the Lord. Do it with one another. Do it with unbelievers. Make your boast to the Lord. Say he is great. Say Jesus is high and exalted. Tell it to your kids. Tell it to your neighbors. Jesus Christ is worthy. Make him your preeminent boast and do it verbally. Clarify with your mouth, Jesus is worthy and wonderful because of the cross. So boast in the Lord. One final encouragement, rejoice without ceasing. Rejoice without ceasing. Philippians 4.4, Paul commanded us, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. How could we do other if, if we have been gripped by the Matthew 27 account, if, we've been, if this is reality that Christ died for us, if we are convinced that this is God's love on display and he is our hope of salvation and, and he, is our, he is our reason for rejoicing, that we can rejoice and it never has to stop, right? If you base your rejoicing in, in how healthy your family is, or if you base your rejoicing on how good the economy is, or if you base your rejoicing on anything other than Christ, your reasons for rejoicing will always be diminished. They'll always, there will be things that will chip away at those. But if you will make Christ and the cross your reason for rejoicing, you will be able to rejoice without ceasing. And all these things are true because the cross highly exalts Jesus Christ and it draws us to him. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh, Father who is in heaven, how grateful we are for the cross. How, how convinced we are that this is your love on display. How desperately we, we need these realities to soak into our minds, to, to, to be lived out in our week. How easily we are distracted from these sublime realities of the cross. I pray that you would, uh, you would keep us from from anything that would, that would lessen or dull our, our amazement at the cross, whether it's, whether it's a wrong view of sin, whether it's a warped view of love, whether it's um, our confusion and our distraction, um, whatever it is, tear it away from us that, that, that we would be able to, to say and to live out the reality that Christ is worthy and Christ is wonderful. Thank you for the cross. Help us to glory and revel and live in it. Help us to never think we go beyond the cross, but help us to keep coming back to it again and again and again. 
because our Christ is our hope today. He died for us, and we are in him. And so in him, we give you the thanks and the praise for the love you have poured out, for the hope that is ours, for rejoicing that carries through all of life's circumstances. We give you praise. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.